Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, a cognitive behavioral-based addiction help program and an alternative to 12 steps and other outdated rehabilitation or treatment models. We offer a self-help program for $19.99 a month. We offer a self-help-ish program, which gives you the option to attend coach-led meetings, access private members-only Facebook groups. Uh, That program costs $39.99 a month. And we offer a coach-led program, a fully coach-led program, in which you submit written cognitive behavioral therapy exercises at your own pace. And those will be customized to your specific addiction. When you submit those exercises, you'll receive written feedback, reflections, and suggestions from a life process program addiction coach. You will also continue communicating, goal-setting, and problem-solving with your coach in a messaging portal. And you'll have the option to schedule one-on-one sessions that can happen through a text messaging app, a phone call, or a video session via Zoom. And this version of the program costs $89 a month. We don't accept insurance for reasons that I've mentioned previously. Two big reasons. One, we don't want to label people, and accepting insurance tacitly requires you to do so. And also, even if we wanted to, it's a really difficult thing to do, given that we're an international program. So in lieu of insurance, as you see, we've adjusted our prices so that the monthly cost of the program is less than or comparable to one month's worth of co-pays for weekly therapy sessions And of course, uh, my humble opinion, of course, but we offer much more than what you can get in weekly therapy. I think you'll find the same thing. Try any of our programs on for size for 30 days. And if it's really not what you're looking for, then you can email us and get your money back. Zero hassle, zero questions asked. To explore these programs, visit lifeprocessprogram.com. And if you're just looking for free resources, articles, podcasts, videos, Q&A, different addiction exercises, worksheets, you'll find those at the website as well. Again, that's lifeprocessprogram.com. You can also email us, call us, text us, follow us on social media, and all of that information is in the show notes. As for today, our podcast is a conversation with Dr. Tom Horvath. Dr. Horvath is the founder of Practical Recovery, and he's long been the president of Smart Recovery, which is an addiction mutual help group and a very welcome alternative to AA and other 12-step programs. The Life Process Program is often compared to Smart Recovery, and people often ask, well, what's the difference between your two programs? And you may recall that I did a podcast with my LPP colleague, D. Cloward, not long ago, in which we compared and contrasted Smart Recovery and the Life Process Program, and I think she did a stellar job of making a distinction between the two programs. She spoke so well, actually, that it encouraged Stanton and me to publish a blog, which took her lead and juxtaposed Smart Recovery and the Life Process Program. Well, Tom Horvath, who is the president of Smart Recovery, wrote me an email back in which actually he showed support for the blog and for the podcast, but he wanted to make a few minor tweaks. Uh, I guess what I wrote in the blog actually wasn't correct because of some updates that Smart Recovery has made. So I invited Dr. Horvath to be on the podcast to talk about his work, about Smart Recovery, and to offer any amendments to our blog piece that would make it more accurate. Very interesting talk about addiction science, our respective philosophies, and of course, about the distinctions and the similarities between Smart Recovery and the Life Process Program. Very enjoyable to talk to him, very smart person, and uh, an interesting conversation. Hope you'll enjoy the show. This is my interview with Dr. Tom Horvath. I'm here with Dr. Tom Horvath. Tom, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Maybe you could tell people just a little bit about your background, who you are, and how you came into the addiction field. I am a psychologist. I fell into addiction treatment somewhat by chance in 1985 
when having opened a private practice in San Diego six months before, I realized, well, one, I needed a specialty to survive. So there was that issue. But two, that there was an entire group of people who wanted to resolve addictive problems, but they didn't want to do it in a 12-step way. And I realized that this was a legitimate um, request on their part and that I could begin to learn about how to do this and help them. And in 1990, I joined up with Smart Recovery at the time, Rational Recovery. And in 1994, Smart became its own organization with its own name. And I've specialized in addiction this entire time uh, at different times running and owning and operating rehabs and sober homes. And I'm back to just doing outpatient, which I will say makes life much simpler. So I, instead of having 45 staff, I've only got five full time. And I continue to devote a lot of time to smart recovery because I think it's maybe the single best way to change the U.S. addiction treatment system, which I think needs to be changed in the direction of offering many more options uh, than it does. Mm. And of course, the life process program is a great option. Um, no option is going to serve everybody, but that serves a really nice niche. And, uh, niche. and Stanton, to his credit, for decades has been bringing along younger collaborators such as yourself and expanding the field and the number of people who can work in this area. He remains one of my heroes. So I'm delighted to be here um, to support your podcast. At what point in your career did you decide that standard stories about addiction recovery were false? I mean, we're, we're not serving the needs of the people who are seeking it. Well, I had a graduate course on addiction, which I probably fell into in the late 70s, just because it fit a hole I had in my schedule. I don't recall particularly wanting to take the course. I don't think it was required at that time. But I did take it. And I thought there's some ideas here that just don't make sense to me. Uh, foremost of them would be the idea that addiction was a disease or that you needed this spiritual approach to solve it. That was completely nonsensical to me. Now, if someone of their own free will chooses to view addiction as a disease and to pursue a spiritual approach, I have no objection to that at all. And I support it. Uh, I'm sure I do lots of things that don't make sense to other people, and I wouldn't want them interfering in my life. I get to make my own decisions. So I have no problem with that. But um, I was pretty confident that there would be a whole group of people who would want something different. And then in 19, late, late 1984, I discovered that that was actually true. I also did a two-week rota rotation as a postdoc at a military uh, drug and alcohol treatment facility, and I just didn't like the sense of how it was happening. Nothing seemed personalized. And one of the things as a clinical psychologist I wanted to do was make each treatment response specific to the person I was working with. And that seemed very cookie cutter to me. Mm. So I think it might be somewhat better now, but uh, other approaches are much more personalized. seems like it takes a, a very unique sort of person to be able to absorb the common sense that you just told me, and then also do something about it. I mean, it's actually really, it seems really difficult to go against a crowd, even when you kind of know they're, like you said, you were confident that there are a subset of people, if not a whole swarm of people who are going to benefit from what you might have to offer if you were just thinking critically for yourself. Um, 
Were you always confident that the things that you were able to think through the way we were able to think through addiction and learn about addiction were things that you could bestow onto others and they would follow and, and they would take your word for it? Or do you know, what I'm, do you know where I'm getting at? Do you, you don't seem like a disagreeable person. You don't seem like an iconoclast or something, but yet uh, I imagine you'd have to have some sort of that quirk about you if you're going to take on an entire, you know, industry. Well, yes, because of the nature of my upbringing and education, I am very willing to question authority. Uh, I've always been struck by Stanley Milgram's idea. He was the person who did this study where people, the subjects in the experiment were ordered to shock other people who they thought were the subjects. And he discovered that people would do a fair amount of shocking just because a person in a white lab coat was telling them to do it. And at the conclusion of his book, he says that in society, uh, there's more damage done by people who follow orders than people who break them. Mm. And it was an amazing idea to me. Now, please, anybody watching this or listening to this, keep stopping at stop signs and traffic lights and pay your taxes and, <laughs> you know, do follow the rules. But there are some things that um, deserve to be questioned and had more people in Nazi Germany, which is what gave rise to a lot of his experiments, question things a little more. Maybe Nazi Germany would not have arisen. So I'm always willing to question question. And the truth is, by the time I got into the field in 1985, the real pathfinders, Stanton, the Sobels, um, there were some folks back in the 60s who challenged uh, orthodoxy. It was much simpler for me. I think I only had one or two death threats in the beginning, (laughs) whereas others had many more. And now um, the field has changed enough that generally speaking, uh, I'm welcomed places um, and invited. It was just invited to do two smart recovery meetings for the National Association of Alcohol and Drug Abuse Counselors. Um, and I had 80 some people in one meeting and 40 in another online. And that was just an unthinkable idea even 10 years ago. So things have changed a lot. And honestly, when I think about heroes, I think about the civil rights movement in the 60s, these were people who were actually beaten up and murdered Mm. um, to advance their cause. So relatively speaking, I think my path has been easy, but there were times when I'd have somebody get in my face and and, uh, challenge me and I felt shaken from time to time. Uh, But uh, the pathbreakers, pathfinders had written and spoken and I could return to them for inspiration. So you're sort of on the shoulders of people who have gone that direction, I guess. That's how I feel now. I, you know, I think it's the nature of being a human being that you're going to stand on shoulders and somebody else is going to stand on yours. Sure. And it's just this ongoing evolution of human development, which I hope can continue if we don't foul our nest too much. Well, that's, um, first of all, I understand you're not preaching anarchy. So we got that out of the good, way. Good. And uh, yeah, so what what do you think is the line between too much questioning? You, know, you can question things to death and make no progress. Some things are set in place and have just been agreed upon to such an extent that to some, you're not going to change 
big views on things. You're not going to change the flow of traffic by arguing to stop at a stop sign, you know. But, you know, someone like Stanton, I understand now, he sees, and we'll get to what smart recovery is in a minute, but he sees smart recovery and thinks, almost perfect. I wish they would just, and then, you know, we could steer them this way and then it would be onward. Uh, so he th- he's this questioner Uber LS and, uh, and, and you seem to be saying that there's somewhere there's a limit to it, or maybe there's a, there's a way that uh smart recovery or something like that can be incorporated in such a way that it's actually, it is making progress. It's a stepping stone toward progress. Do you see um, a distinction between your view and Stanton's let's say, I'll just be specific. I think that, Stanton didn't realize until I informed him recently that SMART made a change in the last year or so on its position about abstinence. Mm. And that change is still unfolding in the organization. And I think we might not be entirely sure how to say it, but this is how I say it. We have terms in the field that um, have been considered to lie along a continuum abstinence, moderation, harm reduction. People are pretty clear about abstinence is not using it at all. Moderation using it, but the costs are so minimal that the benefits exceed it. And then in harm reduction, you can go in two directions. Either you're at least making progress towards the right end of the continuum, or you're not reducing quantity and frequency at all, but you're doing some other things related to it, like needle exchange or not driving, drinking, et cetera, that still make you safer. Mm -hmm. So harm reduction has a more variable um, definition. But from my perspective, those terms are not obsolete in smart recovery, but I think they, they drop into the background because what SMART focuses on now, and it's finally clarified it after all these years, is that we are oriented around stopping problematic addictive behavior. And the clearest example I can think of in this is that if my self-identified addictive problem is with alcohol, and maybe I smoke cigarettes, maybe I smoke pot, maybe whatever. But if I'm, if I'm there to focus on alcohol, I can choose to stop before the first drink or after, let's say, the first, second, or third, or maybe after the fifth, tenth, or twelfth. And those roughly correspond to abstinence, moderation, and harm reduction. And that choice, the choice of the substance or activity and the choice of the stopping point in SMART is now left up to each participant with the goal being that wherever you stop, you have eliminated your problems. And if stopping after five doesn't eliminate your problems, then maybe you want to consider. Because SMART recovery focuses now on stopping with the participant deciding what to stop and where to stop it. It means that everyone in the room who presumably has arrived because they have or could have a stopping goal. Everyone is the same and can connect across a range of substances and activities and across the whole spectrum of where the stopping would occur. So it means there are some things we don't do. We're not teaching safer use. We're not teaching classic alcohol moderation training. 
because that's about using. And I sometimes say to people in the group, I'm pretty sure none of you have a problem using. We're here to talk about stopping. And if you didn't have a problem with stopping, you wouldn't need to be here. But in fact, any human being probably could attend this meeting because I suspect that all of us have stopping goals, even if it's only around what dessert to eat and what dessert not to eat. And I think most of us have lots of stopping goals that we don't much think about because for most of us, it seems that our behavior is very far from something that might be called addiction or ourselves being addicts or alcoholics. But from my perspective, the process is the same for all of us. That's not going to be a popular idea. Many people want to distance themselves from the so-called addicts and alcoholics. And even many of the so-called addicts and alcoholics want to distance themselves from normies. I'm different. So if somebody wants to do that and it works for them, I again have no objection. But SMART is pursuing the tack that human beings have addictive behavior by nature, we all eat and engage in sex and want attention from other people, and those are pleasurable, and we repeat them, and they can get us into trouble. But also, um, there are these other substances and activities, and it, it's easy to imagine that any of us could get in trouble, and at different times have. So not everybody would necessarily come to a SMART meeting, but they could. And then, once that's your immediate goal, you could ask, well, what's that goal in the service of? And that goal is in the service of being more productive and connected, uh, themes that Stanton has very much uh, emphasized, and ultimately uh, in pursuit of being happy, happier or happy to the extent that that's possible in a human life. And underneath that immediate task of stopping problematic addictive behavior, there are the four tasks that SMART presents in its four-point program. We need to gain and maintain motivation, know how to cope with urges, manage our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors better, and uh, live with a greater sense of lifestyle balance. Mm. In my own practice at Practical Recovery, I add two more, uh, which I don't feel bad about because I wrote the first four, um, that we will focus on relationships and we'll focus on having a greater sense of meaning and purpose. Um, so however many subtasks you want to consider, SMART has this four-point program that you can put everything underneath that. And then there are subsidiary tasks under that, like how to be more assertive and how to manage boundaries better, how to communicate more clearly, how to manage stress. That all falls under those four points. Those four points were not tools. They were broad umbrellas under which you would put the different things that you needed to do. And presumably everybody's change process could fit underneath those four points in some fashion. And lastly, in smart recovery, there's information. So that um, we tell people, for instance, it's important to remember that when you have an urge called a craving or a desire, it's going to go away. It's not going to harm you and it's not going to force you to do anything. Many people understand that intuitively, but some don't. And it's um, a revelation to them. I see it happening in meetings occasionally. All of a sudden, they've got a whole new way to, to tackle um, that problem of having urges. And they also understand that after a few months, typically the urges are going to go away mostly or entirely. 
So we, we also teach a lot of information uh, that psychologists have painstakingly gathered over more than a century now and other scientists. And that collection of information and tools, things like a cost-benefit analysis and the tasks that we focus on, all for the sake of being more productive, connect, productive, connected, and happy, that's, that's a way to summarize what we do, and that all occurs in a mutual health group. There's other places to do all that, and it can be done with more or less sophistication in different places, but SMART's one place, and you certainly can't beat the price because it's free. <laughs> so uh, as long as we've got people coming to meetings, I expect that we'll have a number of devoted volunteers who are happy to provide those meetings. I had a conversation with Johan Hari, who's, we were talking about AA, and Johan, of course, he's, he's not a fan of AA. I asked him, why don't you speak out against it you know, more often? And he's, his whole book was Lost Connections or, or Chasing the Scream, which is all about human connection, a la Bruce Alexander and Stanton. And he said, in a time when so many of us are just craving connection, how can you knock a group that gets people together in a, in a unified, common way? I think that there are better and worse ways you can actually get people together for a common purpose. I think that there are harmful ways you can get people together for a common purpose. And, you know, I can't, I don't want to beat this dead horse about AA, but I can just say that SMART is a way that people can get together in a support group that certainly moves people forward. I mean, you're, I, th- I think that the organization is above board and saying that there are different dimensions of your life that you may want to consider. We put a frame around stopping addictive behavior. Is that fair enough? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stanton likes to point out, you know, you have a craving. Uh, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe that just kind of melds in with the rest of your life. Why don't you, maybe the craving part or the drug part or the, the object of your addiction isn't really the interesting thing at all. Maybe we can, we should look beyond that and usurp uh, whatever this problem is with more interesting parts of your life. It sounds like you incorporate that, but smart starts with stopping the addictive behavior rather than beginning with the broadening horizons. Fair? Well, one of Stanton's big themes, and I completely agree with it, is what trying to bring our day-to-day lives in line with the deeper values that we have and which we may tend to ignore. So uh, much of his effort has been to help remind people, you know, these are actually important aspects of yourself. And if you got more in touch with them, and then if you had a craving, well, so what? If you're, if you're really committed to losing weight, for instance, and then you feel hungry one day, it's like, well, okay, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to be upset about that. It's not going to make me eat. Um, it's just something I'm putting up with for the sake of this higher goal. So I, I think um, SMART can do that. Part of the issue that that any organization faces is that people come in at very different levels of sophistication. Mm. In one of my slide presentations, I have a picture of two forearms reaching out, laying several courses of brick. And I throw this, so you see the trowel, the mud, the brick, and these two male forearms. And I say, now imagine that you come across six guys and they're all doing what looks to you like the same thing. And you ask them in turn, well, sir, what are you doing? And the first one says, I'm laying bricks. The next, I'm building a wall. I'm building a building. I'm building a community center. I'm contributing to the development of the life of my community. 
I'm contributing to the development of humanity. Mm. Now, they're all laying bricks, but some of them conceptualize that process in much more sophisticated ways. What I like about smart recovery is it has the capacity to address people across a spectrum of developmental sophistication. And, and you have to have that for any group to have widespread appeal. Uh, AA doesn't have the higher end of sophistication for many people. Uh, and I should say about AA, and people don't talk about this because it is a bit of a sacred cow, but arguably AA has done more damage than it has done good. I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm willing to consider the possibility that that's true, even though AA yeah. has done a lot of good. It has the right ingredients for having done more harm than good, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So now when you talk to somebody who thinks, gee, AA saved my life, and then mm. these crackpots are saying it's doing more harm than good, it doesn't make any sense to them. Yeah. But I'm thinking about all the people who've been discouraged from changing or even thinking about changing in the various ways that have happened because of the dominance of that mindset. So I think the big problem with 12 steps is it has dominated the conversation. If it didn't dominate the conversation, um, it would be probably not creating a lot of harm and be very beneficial. And in most other countries, it's only in the United States that they, that from what I can see, um, that AA has this kind of dominance and other countries have fewer substance problems and much better systems. And another irony is that based on what we know so far, AA and SMART, both as the underlying mechanisms of behavior change, are both probably fundamentally the same as the creation of new community. So SMART draws people who want to talk about self-empowering tools and ideas. AA draws a different kind of person on average, but both of them connect people to new communities and those communities are very healing. They also along the way teach different uh, ways of thinking and behaving. So it's not just community, but that's probably the leading factor. So even though they're very different on the surface, they, they may function similarly. So it's a, it's a big mess, actually. We don't speak clearly about any of this stuff at the national level, and we've not gotten the kind of guidance from the federal government that we might have gotten. Uh, I, I think that one thing that's been hopeful is that the notion of multiple pathways to change, the, the phrase is multiple pathways to recovery, but like Stanton, I don't like that term recovery. Mm. He talks about recover, okay. Okay, but recovery, maybe not. And uh, as long as people understand that there are multiple pathways, I think we might be on a road out of the mess that we're in. Are there limitations, you think, to support groups in general? I think maybe that we should get to this at some point because I published a piece about uh, smart recovery, how it relates to the life process program. You sent back a nice note, but then also offered a correction. So we, we should get to that. But I'm just thinking maybe I would have better said it if you, if you want a support group or if you want a group, I shouldn't call it a support group. Maybe that's a gross word, but uh, if you want some sort of a group facilitated help, what could be better? I don't, I, I couldn't recommend something better than smart. 
but I imagine that there are differences between smart say and your practice. I mean, you mentioned you had, you're able to incorporate two enormous new elements when you're doing private practice. So I wonder if you think that there are just group is for some people, but it's a limited frame. You say you're, you can incorporate all sorts of um, all sorts of people and all sorts of willingness and depth into a group, but how would, how would that differ than what you do in a private practice? So I would call these mutual help groups or in other countries, they call mutual. them mutual aid groups. I, I like that term. And the ways that they cannot go as far as professional treatment are that many people, by the time they have relatively substantial problems, are also dealing with what we call comorbidity. They're dealing with depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, personality disorders, et cetera. And intensive work on that set of problems may benefit, that may be better done in individual sessions uh, or family sessions, couple sessions. So you're not going to get that in a mutual health group. Hmm. If medications are possibly an option, mutual health groups don't do that. And sometimes group psychotherapy where people are committed to participating and they have a leader who deals with the process of what's happening in the room, something that typically doesn't happen in a mutual health group. All of those things are more sophisticated and require fully trained professionals. Drug and alcohol counselors can't do, they can do some of that, but they can't do the the deeper parts of it. So for my money, the ultimate place to treat serious addiction problems is in individual psychotherapy. Mm. And uh, of course, that's an expensive way to do things. And most people can't afford to do that for any length of time. And that's another challenge. But if you got the time and the money and are willing to pursue it, that's the place to go if you need it. Mutual help groups do provide quite a bit of that at no cost and no obligation. So I think they are a benefit. Uh, The life process program goes beyond what a mutual help group can do. And uh, for a very low expense, provides uh, you know an enormous benefit beyond that. And then you're looking at maybe thousands of dollars spent on individual psychotherapy and medications. And sometimes people do need residential treatment for a period of time, typically not. Uh, but it's good to have those components of a treatment system. Uh, I think the U.S. addiction treatment oversells residential treatment, but I'm, I'm not trying to send it away altogether. So we need a range of options. And we should just recognize that the lowest level in the system is mutual help. Mm. And its big benefit is that it's free. Yeah, I got you. Do you see that people who engage in SMART use it as a stepping stone into further sorts of help and life development? Uh, well, sometimes they, they use it and they realize this isn't enough, so they go get more. And sometimes they use the groups um, to really focus on on deeper issues to the extent uh, if you get three to five minutes of airtime in your group once a week, is that enough time for you to process some of your deepest issues? It might be. could be a challenge. If you attend the group for a long time, um, it could be. One of the, the uh, biggest shortcomings of mutual help groups, all of them, <clears throat> is that they are drop-in groups. 
one of the innovations I've been pursuing in SMART now is to have members-only groups. I've been struggling with the kind of name to give them as my latest version. Um, so I have 10, 20 people, <clears throat> and they are committed to this group. They are not required to come every week, but they come most weeks, and over time, people get to know one another. Mm. And our best teachers are other people. The, the professionals who've studied group psychotherapy, where there is a fixed number and you're paying to be there, so you're committed to being there. You have to pay whether you show up for that week or not. The studies suggest that what people remember when the group was finished is not anything that the leader said, but something another participant said. That it's the leader's job is to create this environment in which the participant, participants can really learn from one another. I'm reminded, I think it's a Buddhist notion that when the student is ready, the teacher arrives. Mm -hmm. And that can often happen in a group if the right container for it has been created. And uh, to some extent, you can do that even in a smart recovery group if the membership is more stable. So that's one of my latest um, attempts at innovation. And it's, uh, I think it's a little easier with Zoom. Zoom, or, well, or whatever platform you're using, the, um, it's the one Smart has been using. And it is um, a step backwards in some ways, but it's a big opportunity in others because we can start to do things much more easily I used to run one face-to-face -face smart meeting a week. I'm now running five because it's just not as difficult. I've, and they're all um, great experiences. I, I love being in them. They're an important part of my week. In, in our program, we have eight modules that people run through and they get to do face-to-face -face stuff with us if they want to. And by module three, four, or five, they'll note, yeah, I've got, I think I've got enough here. Thank you. Um, you know, not, maybe not problem solved, but I have the ammunition. And so often when we do, they exit and we ask a few questions or maybe they'll ping me on their way out. It's stuff that has it just, it seems like it's so uh, indirect, you know, like uh, I figured out that I want to take on this job. Uh, I hadn't thought of it before, but now I've just articulated it. So I think I'm going to pursue that. And yeah. it's very often the case that it's not addiction talk anymore. It's not like, here's how I'm going to stop yeah. a drug. It sounds like you're saying, that may be some of the benefit of a mutual aid group, just the inadvertent conversations and connections people make conversations that they have that they didn't expect to have, or you couldn't have possibly conjured on your own. You couldn't have facilitated that that conversation happened. Yes. Yes. One of the things I always do at the end of my smart group is I go around the room and as always, anybody can pass if they want, but I ask them what was most meaningful to you about today's discussion? And you get the widest range of answers sometimes. It's fascinating. And I'm thinking, hold it, we weren't even talking about that. Hmm. But it connected for them. Uh, one of the other ironies of the broad field of addiction treatment is that the size of somebody's problem bears relatively little relationship to what it takes for them to change. So you could have somebody entering SMART or the Life Process Program with pretty severe problems, the sort where you'd think, oh, this person should be in residential treatment. And they come for a while and they make major changes. And then you get other people who's, you know, they're, for me, this is a classic, their addiction is cannabis, marijuana, and they smoke daily, but it doesn't cause major problems. They just think maybe they should stop. 
but they could be in treatment for years because they don't have any compelling reason to actually change. Uh, it's nice to have a compelling reason that makes changing easier. So uh, another way to say this is that all of us involved in helping or attempting to help these individuals probably should be pretty humble because there's a lot going on we don't understand very mm-hmm. well. Yeah, yeah. And when Stanton and I were writing, this is one of the things that he and I connected on was that it's crazy how uh, just a little bit of advancement in a person's life can compound in a way that you would yeah. never expect. And in a, at, a, at a rate that you'd never expect, you could see someone who's so seemingly down and out, like you say, um, oh, wow, this is a person who really needs specific targeted help. Uh, right. And something small, you just can't predict what it is in their lives because you just don't know their prologue. Um, so uh, apropos of that, it yeah. is very important in any environment to create the non-judgmental, accepting, supportive sense uh, that it's okay to be yourself here. Um, mm. uh, and Stanton has always done that, and we're doing our best to do that in smart recovery. And I think we generally succeed. Um, some uh, meeting leaders are better than others at doing that. One of the things I like about a mutual help group is people vote with their feet. If you don't like this meeting leader, don't go back. Go find somebody else. And with the Zoom meetings now, you've got a whole range of choices. We have, I think, over 500 Zoom meetings around the country, and you're not restricted. You can go on the website and find, you know, you can live in Arizona, and you can find one in Michigan. And as long as the timeline's up for you, in you go. So how does someone find that? That was, you're trying to make me look good here because I was going to ask you about that, how attendance has been in, in meetings since everything that's catastrophic has happened so far in the world. Well, we have fewer meetings than we used to, but there are on the national website, there are the, the national online meetings. So there's an official list there and you can click on to any of those, but some of those get enormous, uh, hundreds of people in the meeting. You can go into the geographical directory, put in the zip code and find the meetings that originally were in Flint, Michigan, let's say. And now if any of those transition to online, there'll be a link there. There's nothing stopping you from going into that meeting. Maybe, you know, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. Maybe if there's a meeting in Youngstown, I could go join that and uh, have a sense of connection to it, even though I'm not there. Um, so that's an option for people. And I think people have been doing that in my meetings in San Diego. I have, have had people from Canada and from all over the U S I don't know how they find us, but they find (laughs) us and there they are when we welcome them. Very interesting. So that's on the national, the smart national site website. Uh, the master list is on the smart site. Uh, and there are some other local lists as well, but but then you have to find the local community and see what it lists, what it is listing. I want to be kind to your time because I've taken some away from you now. Um, you may have, we may have gotten into this earlier, but just for good measure, when I wrote a piece uh, making the distinction between smart and our life process program, you said you liked the, the tone was right. Yes. Uh, a few things were factually inaccurate and maybe that's by virtue of some updates smart has made there was only one one issue which you wouldn't have had reason to know about was that smart has transitioned from this abstinence oriented or abstinence focused Uh, we still talk about abstinence oriented but then we say 
we're our focus is on stopping problematic addictive behavior and it's that notion of you could stop at zero or two or ten drinks and that everybody comes together so and it was stanton's big criticism and it was always my big criticism of smart that people should make their own decisions about that and that we could have people in the same group uh, who are stopping at zero or two or 10 and they don't have to fight about it. Uh, and in my practice since the late eighties, it's been that way. And I mean, occasionally I get somebody who wants to argue about it. We always run uh, at least one group and sometimes somebody in the group, uh, but over 35 years, there've been less than a handful of fights about it. So it's not a, a particularly troublesome issue. I think everybody understands that I need to work my change process and I'm here to learn from other people and help them. And this big distinction between the alcoholics and the addicts on the one hand and normies on the other, that we could just eliminate that and it would be fine. And if you want to keep that distinction, there are other groups you can go to. Mm. I think that that accepting attitude is in the zeitgeist now, as you mentioned, it's yes. not so alarming anymore because I'm working right. on an article right now and I interviewed clinicians from all over the country about this. And whereas even, even when I started researching about addiction, which was only five, six years ago, uh, mm -hmm. people were very worried about accepting people in their practice um, or in their, even in their conversations, um, acknowledging that someone was currently using drugs or currently involved in their addictive behavior because of the liability piece. Right. And there's an idea right. that um, what if somebody thinks that I encourage them to do this and then they do something dangerous now? Right. I, I mean, it was basically unanimous that people said, well, what, I mean, they were using before they got to me. What is it? Right. What's the deal? I mean, why would I not, how am I supposed to help this person if I can't actually have a conversation with them? So I think that's kind of amazing. It's really, that smart can update. I like to, I like to see that unlike AA, which is nearly refuses to change its text with the times, mm -hmm. uh, smart as time goes on. And I went back and did a little reading. It continues to update with mm -hmm. what seems to be best practice and what seems to be most helpful and encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. It, it proves to be challenging to do that. It's, it's not easy. I think a lot of the credit for the changes that you're describing does go to Stanton because he's been pounding on this uh, issue since 1975. I mean, that was, that was the year love and addiction was published, right? Yeah. I mean, it's 10 years longer than I've been doing it. And, and he's been out there with these books and presentations. And of course he's drawn a lot of fire. Yeah. For it, uh, but it's provided some shield and, and protection uh, camouflage for the rest of us to go out and do what we could do. Uh, and it really, things are different. Just the notion that there are multiple pathways and clinicians now willing to do harm reduction uh, is a big change. It's, it really is a big change just in the past decade, few years. I know that one of his worries, Stanton's worries is, you know, I've been preaching this thing, but sometimes people begin to accept my ideas, whether I get credit or not, don't really care. Although it'd be kind of nice to get some credit, but uh, his biggest peeve is when, when people can acknowledge certain keynotes, now that he'll address, you know, okay, addiction is mm -hmm. not a disease. All right. Uh, you can, you can contend with addiction by dealing with other areas of your life or things like that. 
So people accept those, but then you go to give a presentation and it seems like somewhere along the line, all of that new information just becomes absorbed into the, the standard boxes. And, you know, you're then regurgitating baseline disease, not, not you, just people in general, the public in general, regurgitating baseline fundamental mistaken addiction notions. Are you more optimistic than Stanton that we're making progress and we're headed the right direction? Cause I know from working with him and I agree with him at least to some extent that it seems like it's impossible to fully just get a good, uh, you know, to get ourselves pointed in exactly the right direction here. Well, you know, Stanton may end up being like Moses who saw the promised land, but did not get to live there. Mm. Um, I think any of us who are trying to do something big, end up doing something that's going to extend beyond our lifetimes. Mm. Um, John Lewis recently died a civil rights leader in the sixties, you know, a major force and a major force for decades. He certainly didn't see the culmination of what needed to be done, but his work was absolutely critical. And he, what, he was one of dozens, hundreds of leaders. Um, it's, uh, it's the ongoing development of humanity that we're all engaged in. I'm the bricklayer who's trying to build that building to contribute to the development of humanity. Hmm. And uh, that sort of project extends beyond our lifetimes. Uh, but I think uh, when the history of the 20th and 21st century change in addiction is uh, written, I don't think there's going to be anybody more important than Stanton Field. Great accolades there. I, of course, I'm, I have a bias, but I, I tend to agree. Um, yeah. But you're a force to be reckoned with. I mean, you're, you are clearly, clearly uh, making progress in this realm. Thank you. Talk a little bit more about how smart and mutual help groups are, that they can be a, a lead into a program like yours and what you do differently, specifically what you do differently in, in practical recovery. What extra steps do you take? How do you engage with a, with a client? So some people are so concerned about privacy that they're only going to begin with a licensed professional because there's a guarantee by law of privacy. But other people, they're not hyper about that. They're willing to go to a group. They discover that they could actually think about this and talk about this a little bit. And then they decide some of these issues really, I can see it's too much for a mutual help group. I better go talk to a therapist. Mm -hmm. So I see that as one way in. And then as I tell clients when they're considering coming to my company, Practical Recovery, I say most of our time is going to be spent on other issues. There's only so much I can talk to you about addictive problems. I'm going to teach you how to cope with cravings. I'm going to uh, help you be clear about what your motivations to change are. I'll start by asking you what you like about your substances or activities, and we'll, we'll build up a, an understanding of why it's been good for you in many ways. And then we're going to work on finding another way for you to get the relaxation or the pleasure or the social connection that you get from your substance. But that's what we're going to spend most of our time doing. And we'll be entirely focused on you and your goals and we'll work together as a team as long as it's helpful to you. So we just can do it with more depth and with more speed. I, one of my other notions is um, 
Well, I, when I file my taxes, I always hand them to an accountant who, who files them. Mine aren't especially complicated, but they're complicated enough that on the one hand, I could download all those IRS uh, documents and circulars and read them. And I'm smart enough. I could probably figure out how to do it. And if I make a mistake, they'll tell me and I can correct it. But I save a whole lot of time for what I consider a nominal fee to give it to somebody who won't make mistakes, generally speaking, and he'll get it done quickly. So if you're going to come to a professional, you'll probably be able to figure this out on your own anyway, but maybe we could help you do it faster and save you a lot of grief along the way. Uh, you told me that your wife is about ready to kick you out from drinking. So maybe you want to get on this quickly rather than trial and error along with a divorce. So I, I would say that's the big advantage of, of treatment is that with luck, it is quicker and maybe deeper. There may be some fringe benefits. I don't, I don't want to push treatment excessively because, again, I think it's hard to know what we're doing exactly. And I'm also very persuaded that um, apparently over the last four or five decades, the outcomes from psychotherapy are not getting any better. Mm. The outcomes from cancer treatment, they seem to be learning how to treat cancer better and other disorders. But psychotherapy probably plateaued in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And it just may be that once we got the basics figured out, that's what we need to keep doing well. We keep adding new forms of psychotherapy and the old ones never go away. It's not like they come and go. They just keep coming. We have hundreds of them now. And they, I think fundamentally, they all do the same thing. They ask you to examine what's uncomfortable for you with the behaviors you don't want, the emotions that you would prefer not to have. And then look at the situations that they, that behavior and emotion seems to arise from. Consider the interpretation that you give to that. So I've got these events and how I understand it. And then I end up with these behaviors and emotions. And what we're going to do is jump in there and show you some different ways to interpret this. So maybe you've been ignoring the rewards and punishments in your environment, or you've been losing sight of your deeper values, or you're just not communicating clearly with people. Um, whatever it would be, these therapies add different nuances about all this. You're not considering how the habits you learned as a child and responding to an abusive father carry forward in your job context, and you're afraid of your boss in ways you don't need to be. It could be any of those things, but it's fundamentally a reinterpretation of, of your own experience, and then you can move forward better. And the truth is we're all doing that all the time. Some of us have, have worked through more of it than others and have fewer problems, but a lot of people were a lot luckier too. Uh, I can say that you know, I've certainly had some challenges in life, but relatively speaking to the people I see in smart meetings, my life was... Um, pretty well functioning. So I, I feel grateful. And it's one of the reasons that I want to give back through SMART as much as I can. And for those who can afford private treatment, then practical recovery is there for them as well. Therapy in general is novel and strange, I feel like. Uh, you know, it hasn't been forever that you pay someone to be there to talk with them about your problems in life. I can well, see at most 150 years old. Yeah. And yeah. you could argue that Psychotherapy has arisen because of the breakdown of community. 
Mm. In the past, you could have perhaps gotten all of that from extended family and friends and mentors. Uh, you might also argue that as the world has become increasingly complicated, uh, that extended family and friends, it's just beyond them unless they really got a lot of expertise. So well, it could be that both are true. Well, and it's not that it's not helpful. I think it's been a boon. Obviously, I sort of, <laughs> you and I sort of have to say that <laughs> to the same face, mm-hmm. but I think it's true. The problem seems to be when people think about therapy as, um, you know, some treatment for what ails them, like they're going to get it one of these times, you know, mm-hmm. no, I'm not fixed yet. No, I'm not fixed yet. I wonder what it's going to take mm-hmm. to fix me rather than what you were describing as, why don't you consolidate some of the problems you've been thinking about? We'll talk through them and we'll create some sort of a bridge to the rest of your life because that's what life, it's a balancing act. You know, you're not going to, I'm not going to fix your problems here. Um, Let me add one, one detail here that is important Uh, in smart recovery and in outpatient psychotherapy offices, we get people who are generally higher functioning. Hmm. Uh, We have left out of today's conversation people who have psychotic disorders, who um, need a lot of support beyond psychotherapy. They need to call it institutional type support. And uh, they, I believe, well, I believe we need to provide that support to them through the health system. So in their case, it's not like, oh, well, I do it on my own. Uh, and take longer, or do I pay a little money and get it done faster? Their situations can be rather different than that. So I don't want to leave out that population or present an overly rosy view. But for many people, probably most people, uh, although the balance may be shifting now with COVID, um, we don't need that intense level of institutional support. But if someone needs it, I think we should, as a society, provide it. Wouldn't you say the same principles, though, are, I mean, if you're really going to be helping a person, they should apply all the way down, even though we would have to be honest and say that there are going to be some people who will be most helped with some sort of like institutional support indefinitely. Um, Mm -hmm. But you have to believe that there's some way to get people oriented, you know, or reoriented with life. So that's, you know, you could be a therapist for someone who has severe psychosis or something like that, but you still would want to be trying to figure out how you can get them, render them as independent as possible. Yes. Yeah. So the same principles, scales. same principles, but maybe more intensity, uh, medications, uh, daily kinds of work, all day kinds of work, a bed and a facility as needed. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think that, that that's a group of people that needs any different kind of approach you're not approach for any human being point taken though that you're under no illusion that everyone has the capacity and resources to say "Hmm, wonder if i ought to do therapy or not or just you know go to work today Yeah, yeah i completely understand so i'll wrap it up here i really really appreciate all the time you took uh technical difficulties and all that always, that's like a trauma we just got through. So I think we're stronger for it. <laughs> um, well, I very much, Zach, appreciate your thoughtful questions. Well, thank you. And how do people one more time reach you, Smart Recovery? Maybe you don't want them to reach you, but maybe if they could uh, somehow find you or find your work in, in Smart Recovery and Practical Recovery. Well, so the national Smart Recovery website is smartrecovery.org. 
that's easy to remember. Um, and my practice website is practicalrecovery.com. And I will see emails that come off of the website. Um, so that's an easy way to get to me. Um, and uh, I did write a book a while ago called Sex, Drugs, Gambling, and Chocolate, a workbook for overcoming addictions. So if you want to get a summary of that book, you can go to my website and see a summary there. And if it looks appealing, then you can order. If people want to know, by the way, I just bought it just before we spoke. So there you go. I did look on the website and I, it was interesting enough to me that I want it delivered. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank yeah, you again. You'll see, a lot of, you'll see a lot of Stanton in that book. All right. <laughs> thank you again for all your time and for making extra time even for me today and for everything that you're doing. It's great talking to you. It's a pleasure to, to meet you in person and I look forward to our next discussion. 